Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hello, everyone. Welcome into the Determined Truth Podcast. We are now launching into our Luke series as we work our way through the Gospels and the whole New Testament. And so we've already done Matthew and Mark. Hopefully you've gone back and uh, have been experiencing that just so you know kind of what to expect in the series where we just teach you everything you need to know. You don't even ever need to read a commentary. It's going to be an exhaustive podcast. In six or a weeks. sermon. Or a sermon, nothing. Just, yeah, you're good now. Just yeah, one hour yeah. podcast. You're good. Hey, when before it, we- In fact, when you're in church and the preacher says something, say, I knew that. Yeah. Or you could just start, it would be really helpful. The pastor will actually really appreciate this. If you just start playing the podcast. Yeah. I knew that (laughs) Vinny and Rob said that. Vinny and Rob said that. Yeah. Super helpful. I knew that. Yeah. Did did you ever get heckled during a sermon? No. That happened for the first time with our new pastor. He's been in there like three years. Well, a year and a half was COVID, but we had a heckler a couple of weeks ago. That was uh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, hey, before we start into Luke, we just launched a podcast in real time. It was it was last week we we launched it. What, what do you want to share about that? Uh, just to remind folks to go back and listen to. Yeah. Again, our hearts, you know, the application of the gospels that we've been listening to is to weep with those who weep and the, the cry for injustice and what have you, and to mourn with those who are mourning and blessed are those who are mourning. And we just want to continue to weep and mourn for the people of uh, Ukraine and the people of Russia. And the hate crimes against Russians is just mm-hmm. uncalled for. We need to stop that. Uh, and these wars need to cease because people are being affected. And it's the poor and the, the, the moms and dads and the, the families. And it's not the people in power. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so listen to that podcast. Was, we had some Russian uh, citizens on and we had some people that were formerly missionaries in Russia on to talk about what's happening there in Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. And so every, everything that we talk about, even in these studies, it's what we learn in the studies, everything else we talk about outside of that is application of what we're learning. So it's not like it's a different topic. And so it's just about being consistent is about how, how do Christians live as citizens of the kingdom of God, even in the midst of horribleness. And that's where we need to be uh, just consistent there. So let's jump into Luke. I don't know. What do you want to, what do you want to talk about with Luke? What's interesting about this? Well, first off, this is going to be off. Gospel is really incredible. And we're going to discuss mostly tonight, today's podcast, why it is. But I'm going to begin, you know, one of the things that we've seen in the in these podcasts, I'm hoping people are, are taking from it is, hey, there's a lot more to the stories than I ever imagined that there really was. You know, we, our last Matthew podcast, we talked about these stories aren't just like random stories that pasted here and pasted there, that there was a, a theme and a message, what have you. So a number of years ago, I was studying for the Gospel of Luke to, to do some classes and do some teaching there. And I was going through a couple of commentary series and just going, you know, I know there's something more um, when I'm reading this commentary and I'm like 500 pages into this commentary, mm. literally. And I'm thinking, you know, there's nothing in this commentary. I've learned that I couldn't have heard in a Sunday school class. I mean, this mm-hmm. is just real generic stuff. Not, not your class, of course, by the way, but no, no, yeah. way better. But, <laughs> and I just, I'm like, I know these biblical writers are, are masters and they're awesome what they're doing. And there's gotta be some other nugget to help us unpack this. But I'm now like 700 pages in this commentary. And I'm like, I'm way too invested. I don't want to start over. If I read another commentary, it's going to go back to page one. And I, you know, and I, but I'm like, I'm not getting anything out of this commentary. I know there's more. I'm, I'm missing something. What is it? This is 15 years ago or more. So finally, I went ahead and I, I said, I can't do this anymore. And I got another commentary out. And this commentary, it's Joel Green's commentary, was mm-hmm. is phenomenal. And I went, it's like, I was 
50 pages in, maybe not even that many. And I'm like, oh, he's got it. This is it. This, oh yeah. Mm. The, the gospel began coming alive. And so uh, it was really a powerful experience for me. And I just want to, since then, obviously we've done a lot of more studies and a lot more resources and just kind of really putting the gospel Luke in this context. And uh, it's going to be a fun, fun time. Yeah, absolutely. So, and just to reference, because people are going to look up and say, oh, I need to get this Joel Green commentary on Luke, then it is somewhat of a technical commentary. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like of a five, book. 600 pages all by itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's part of the new international commentary in the new Testament by mm-hmm. Joel Green, so, but it is a substantive uh, work, but it's uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. And, and if, if you don't like, like it, you could use it as a doorstop because it's huge. So yeah. like double, yeah. double win, right? Yeah. You can, you can have a <laughs> pillar on the house fall down and probably yeah. prop the house up with it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So when we read Luke chapter one, verses one through four, so the beginning of Luke. And then if we read Acts chapter one, verses one through three, we're getting some information about the author the setting in a very different way than the other gospels even start off. This is, is really unique in this regard. Where's the best place to start when we're reading, doing a study of Luke. Uh, let's do this. How about, I'll read Luke one, one through four. Okay. And then you can read acts one, one, two, three. Okay. Whatever translations we have, they might not be the same. Yeah. And I'm ESV. We'll, okay. I've got the new American standard. It's better than yours. Luke one verses one through four. And then you can read acts chapters one verses one through three. Inasmuch as many as have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth of the things that you have been taught. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the first place to begin is the reality that this, these two volumes clearly go together, right? Theophilus is obviously introduced in both books. Mm -hmm. Acts 1, 1 to 3 kind of summarizes the gospel of Luke. So we know that Luke wrote these two volumes and it's pretty apparent that he planned on doing this all along. Mm -hmm. So the gospel of Luke begins and ends in Jerusalem. So it starts with the, the birth of John the Baptist in Jerusalem. It ends with Jesus in Jerusalem, telling the disciples, hey, stay here till the Holy Spirit comes. The book of Acts begins in Jerusalem, but then ends in Rome. That's the first thing that there's this trajectory that's from Jerusalem to Jerusalem, to, and then boom, out to Rome. And so I think there's something about there. And maybe we'll get into some of that when we get to the book of Acts. Okay, so when we looked at Matthew and Mark, those kind of start in a different way and even how they start their gospels and, and their narratives and everything like that. But Luke is really doing a lot of investigating here. Did he use sources? What did he actually do with Mark? You know, how, how did those work together? Yeah. So Luke tells us this interesting thing that there, that there apparently there's all these stories of Jesus out there and Theophilus doesn't know what's true and what's not true. So Luke is going to kind of compile them all together. And Luke says that he's, he's carefully investigated everything from the beginning, including eyewitnesses. And we certainly believe that one of those eyewitnesses was maybe even Mary herself, the mother mm-hmm. of Jesus. The first two chapters kind of, the, the Mary stories have this very feminine perspective, this motherly perspective. It says that Mary cherished all these things in her heart in chapter two, I think it's verse 20 or something like that. So 
likely we think that Luke certainly used Mark. Uh, if you look at, and we'll do this in a few weeks uh, on the podcast, David, kind of comparing Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you can mm-hmm. see that Matt and Luke are definitely following the order of the stories in the Gospel of Mark, and then just supplementing it and adding to that. Now, Luke doesn't use Mark as much as Matthew does. So about 52% of the Gospel of Mark is in the Gospel of Luke. But then Luke supplements it with his own stuff. So mm-hmm. certainly one of the things that he supplements it with is parables. So you, when you mean supplements with his own stuff, it's like there's stuff that's unique to Luke that we don't find yeah, in Mark. That's what, yeah, thank you. That's what I mean. Yeah, not his own stuff. He didn't make his own stuff. He's mm-hmm. getting these things from sources. Mm-hmm. Paul, probably maybe even Peter, uh, certainly the Gospel of Mark, and from eyewitnesses, Mary and others. And then he's kind of, kind of compiling it all in there. And so he knows Mark's out there. He's probably using the Gospel of Mark as a template. And then he's supplementing it himself. And one of the things he supplements it a lot with is parables. Mm-hmm. Uh, mo- most of the parables that we know from Jesus, of Jesus, are actually found in the Gospel of Luke. So the prodigal son and the good Samaritan, the Pharisee and the tax collector, those are all found in Luke's Gospel. And they're not found in Matthew or, or Mark at all. Mm-hmm. We've talked about authorship and dating and, well, not dating, you know, I'm yeah, married, no, yeah, so I'm not going to court you, yeah, but yeah. in how those works for the Gospels. And we've even said, like, hey, this isn't the biggest significance you know, you, you don't need to know all that stuff to understand the book. Are we going to hold the same idea for Luke? Yes, but no. Now, the reality is it's still important. We're not saying that it's not important to know who the author, or the time of the writing itself is, but it's ultimately not significant. You know, there's a lot of dispute about the, the authorship of the gospel of John. Look, we both think John's scripture, the people listening to this probably think John's scripture. Okay. Can we get on our, go on our way now? Does it, does it really matter who wrote it? We know mm-hmm. that it was written and that it's there and it's in the scriptures and we're, and we're kind of we're kind of good with that. In Luke's gospel, I think what's most significant is Luke appears to be a Gentile. If Luke is the Luke that we know of in the book of Acts mm-hmm. and from the travels of Paul, he was likely a Gentile, but he probably was a Gentile who was following the Jewish religion. So we call him a proselyte. Mm-hmm. And because he knows the Greek version of the Old Testament really well. What's most important in the Gospel of Luke, however, is the man who, to whom he wrote the book to. He names him as Theophilus. We saw that in the Acts 1 and the, and the Luke 1 passage. Now, Theophilus, Theos and Phileo, is a combination of two words that means lover of God. So we suspect that might be a nickname. This man, maybe he became a Christian. I think that's what I think. And that they gave him this nickname of lover of God. Some think that it's actually a church, this church named the- that's a lover of God, but I-, I think it's an individual. And I think that's an individual who is actually funding Luke's enterprise. In other words, this is a really expensive thing. If Luke's going to go travel around the Roman world talking to eyewitnesses, that's going to take time and money and resources. Somebody's got to pay for this. Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. And most excellent was a title used for members of what we call the equestrian order by the name equestrian order you can see that they owned horses Mm -hmm. and the equestrian order was the order from which members of of the senate came from so if you want to be senator in rome and if you want to be the emperor you have to be a senator in order to be a senator you must come from the equestrian order in rome this is the elite of the elite Mm -hmm. like several hundred of the really 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 elite people in rome and it seems that this guy has become a christian now this is really significant as we're going to get into the next few weeks talking about what the gospel of Luke's message is, you're like, Luke is saying this to an elite of an elite of an elite in Rome. Mm-hmm. What's this guy going to do with this? Blessed are the poor. Woe to you who are rich. What is he going to do with it? So 
I think this is really significant to understand not simply what Luke is saying, but he's saying this to the wealthy of the wealthy and the powerful of the powerful in Rome. I think that's very significant. Okay, so this is going to be something that we'll we'll see play out as yeah. the book goes on with this concept of if Luke is writing to someone living in Rome, we know later, like you could read Paul uh, and, and there's, you know, even in Galatians 3, it's like, even if you're slave or free, so there's like a, a, a socioeconomic thing there. With James, you get chapter 2 where there's this yeah. contrast between the rich guy who everyone's showing partiality to. And then you have this poor person who stinks and is disgusting and you're not, you know, being favorable to. So what does the world of economics look like in the Roman world? I've, I've heard stats that like maybe up to a third of the Roman world is going to be enslaved at that point. Is there going to be other economic hardships going on? Yeah, this is, this is really significant in terms of how to understand the what's happening in the gospel of Luke. So we, we would break down as far as we know, the Roman society by saying you got about 90% of the population that is living at subsistence or below level. Mm. And, and you could break them up as like 30, 30, 30. The, the bottom 30 part percentage of people, they live below subsistence. And they, they have less than what they need to survive. Mm-hmm. You have another 30% that has basically gets along, gets by each day, but they barely make it each day. So right there, then that means like 60% That's, of the population yes. is like, like for Not us, sure what? where tomorrow's food is going to come from. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have another 30%. They said that they think they know where tomorrow's food is going to come from, but they don't have any extravagant. They're still living at, at poverty level, but they're secure a little bit. In other words, they, they probably have, they might still own their own land mm-hmm. and they can farm their own land and they have enough crops coming in. The other 60% probably have had to sell part of their land off for example, uh, to pay for taxes and things like that. And mm. they're slowly and slowly losing more and more and more of their land mm-hmm. and making them even more dependent. So then you have like the top 10%. Well, 7% of them, so that's like the 90 to 97%, might be middle class, what we might call middle class. It's not really middle class, it's, it's below that, but they're mm-hmm. merchants and maybe they have, a, they have two boats and enough of a fleet there. Maybe they have a couple shops. And they're doing pretty well and they, they have more than subsistence. They live okay. And then you have the 3%. Mm-hmm. And that is the elite of the elite. And they are very powerful and very wealthy and they live off everybody. Else. And that 3%, they don't work. They live off everybody else. So the way to understand that is it's a system of patronage. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that there's a patron and there's a client and there's all these different levels. So you might be a client who has, who's dependent upon a patron for your well-being, And that patron might himself be a client of somebody else above him who's mm-hmm. a patron above him. So you have all these ladders. So when you go to a meal, everyone sits in order of their status within the culture and the society. And it's known, hey, dude, you better move over. I'm, I'm ahead of you. I mean, that's just major shaming when that happens. When you're, when you're told to move mm-hmm. and everybody knows you have to move, that's major problem. So the way patronage works is actually empire wide. And this will be important when we get to like first Peter, for example, what happened was when uh, Octavian became the emperor in Rome and takes on the name Augustus, mm-hmm. he establishes this system of patronage, which is social, economic, religious. It's all part of one package. And what he did is he said, okay, I'm the head of the household and the empire is my household. Mm. And then each household is like the father's the head of that household. So this is where you get the idea of household codes from like yeah. an Ephesians five or something, That's or right. Ephesians five. Yeah. That's oh. right. That's okay. right. And so, and what's happening then is the, the local household is supposed to be 
a microcosm of the empire. Mm-hmm. That's why if you don't maintain your household, you're actually bringing devastation upon the empire. Okay. Like if you don't worship the God, that's why the religion is part of it. If you don't worship the gods and give obeisance to them, then that's going to wreak havoc on the empire. The way this works then was if there's a patron above you, you do something for them, a favor for them, a gesture for them, or you give them honor and you give them esteem or acclaim. And as a result, they might give you a job. Hmm. And so you're totally dependent upon them because you need that job. And oftentimes there would be food shortages because this is just the way it was. That, mm-hmm. that 90% of the population, uh, if there's a, it's a large empire. So if there's a famine in Egypt, then it impacts the grain, ish, the grain throughout the empire and the price of grain go up. And so what happens is the 3%, that elite of the elite, they would actually hold festivities, religious festivities on like a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. And they pay for it all. Mm-hmm. And that might be the only time you eat meat because you go to this religious festival. It's an honor of a God. It's whatever it might be. And you go there and you're giving honor to them by attending their banquet that they're hoping for the whole, the whole city and the whole city now gives them honor because you did this for us. And you, in the gospel of Luke, you'll see, for example, the miracle in, in chapter seven, a centurion. And now he's a centurion means he's a, a soldier who oversees a hundred soldiers and he's not going to be liked by the Jewish people. Let's just be honest. You're, you're the occupying power. Mm-hmm. So he built them a synagogue and the members of the synagogue come to Jesus and say, Hey, the centurion's servant is injured or, or is ill. Would you come heal him? He's a good man. Jesus. He built our synagogue. And that's, we owe him Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we, we're going to ask you to do us a favor for us by healing this man's servant, because this is this debt obligation system. So Jesus begins to travel to the synagogue. And the synagogue official goes, um, I don't owe you anything. And as soon as you come into my home and do me this favor, I'm now going to owe you something. So you don't, by right and responsibility, you shouldn't be coming to my house because you're not in, in my debt. And if you come into my house, I'm going to be in your debt. And so this is going to present an oddity thing here because I don't want to be in debt to a Jewish person. So what happens is he says, I don't want you to come into my house because you're not in my debt. But here's the way it works. I'm over all these men. And if I command them, they just do it because I can command them. So Jesus, if you just command my son to be my servant to be well, he'll, he'll be well. And Jesus goes, I haven't found such faith in all of Israel. But the story is actually this patronage client story of, of like, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house because you're not in my debt. And the, the Jewish people going, hey, Jesus, you know, help him out because we're in his debt. Well, and so a lot of what you're describing, the way you're, you're given kind of commentary on this, if someone were to go back and read this, they're, they're going to be like, wait, Rob's give, he's describing the story and I'm not seeing any of the words, you're right? but, but you're, you're describing all this extra biblical context. Right. That's just part of the social construct, which is ultimately like, it sounds like the ultimate pyramid scheme in terms of how things work. Right. Um, yeah. 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 It, it's, but, it's a total pyramid scheme. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but the reality is I have the army behind me, so you're going to obey. Yeah. Well, and even there, like we oftentimes read the Luke story and it's at best, it's just seen as, oh, wow. Even the Gentiles are acknowledging and have right. faith, but you're saying, no, it's, it's, it's even way bigger than that. That's right. So side note here, I was having a conversation with someone who was like, I think Jesus was working within the systems of, of Rome. He didn't seem to oppose Rome or anything like that mm. at all. And I think Christianity, we should just work within whatever governmental system we have. And I'm like, no, that is not Jesus. Mm-hmm. He is radically presenting a counter-cultural, counter-revolutionary empire, a kingdom that is 
fundamentally opposed to the empires of the world. And that's mm-hmm. all empires mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. This is the system that Jesus is going to overthrow. What you have then is you have this wealthy people, especially in Rome. That's where they're all, they're all there in Rome. And, but you have a few people who are overseeing Rome's enterprises throughout the empire. So Herod is actually an Idumean man. Uh, and Idumean is, is south of Judea. And they're like half Jewish. And so Rome goes to, Her- Augustus goes to Herod and says, hey, I'm going to put you in power and you're going to maintain control for me. I'm going to make you king of Judea. So th- these are client kings. They mm-hmm. work for Rome, but they're locals. So you have a few of these elite people who are benefiting from the occupation or from the Roman Empire throughout the Roman Empire. But most of it is actually in the city of Rome. And we'll talk about this more when we get to the book of Revelation, for example. I wrote a, a blog about uh, Revelation 6 on this a little bit. So you have the wealthy in the city, and basically they don't work, they don't pay any taxes, but they benefit the city with their money, whether it's through a festivity or helping out, whatever it might be, or what I'm going to pay for the, for the Olympic games to be in your city this week, or mm-hmm. you know, for some festivity there. And everybody gets to celebrate and have a party and we're all good to, good to go. And that person basically owns a whole lot of stuff and collects taxes, but they tax you at such a rate, especially that bottom 30%, they can't afford to pay it. Mm-hmm. They can't pay the taxes and their food, so they keep losing land, and they keep losing land because after their debts come due. Forgiveness theme in the Gospel of Luke is so huge because, like, you better forgive their debts because you keep confiscating their land and their territories. And then, well, and, and just real quick to interject, this is not the, the Roman system is not the Jewish system of land where even if you lose your land, you know that right. at the year of jubilee you will retain it back. Once it's gone, this is this is a, right. you know a normal like. For us, uh, the equivalent would be a capitalistic system. If I lose my land, it's gone. It, it, someone else gets to grow their wealth with it. This is colonialism at, in colonialism. If, if we're going to take this land from the American Indians, or we're going to take this land over here, or we're going to take this land over here, or Russia's going to take Crimea, whatever you might mm-hmm. think about that. That's just the way we are. We're taking it. It's ours, and we have the guns, or we have the weapons, and you don't, and that's the way it is. So these wealthy elite people, they didn't work. They collect taxes, they confiscate more lands, and because they have more lands, that crop is now mine, and I'll let you farm it, and I'll pay you a meager salary, and you can't even afford that. You're going to become falling more and more into debt. So the whole system was set up where you have to give honor to the people above you uh, because you need them to survive. Mm-hmm. And the people below you, you don't give honor to because they simply don't help you at all. And that might sound like, well, that's, that's ridiculous. But 90% of the people are trying to find tomorrow's food. Mm-hmm. So when, they're set, when we say they don't help people below them, it's because they can't. They, they literally can't do this without threatening their own existence. Mm-hmm. Now, you'll see this, by the way. And I'm going to show this to Vinny because I'm sharing my screen with you, by the way. This is actually in the description. So if, if you go to images.google.com or Google Images there and type in the Erastus inscription in Corinth, uh, and it's E-R-A-S-T-U-S. This is a pavement. You can mm. see his name, Erastus, here in the pavement. Yeah. And the inscription says this. It says, Erastus, uh, in return for his idolatship, uh, laid the pavement at his own expense. And idolatship is like a public office in the city. So what's interesting, this is the, that's in Corinth. It's a street. And in the street, basically, Erastus said, I did this. I paid for this. And because I paid for the street, you guys gave me this governmental office. Mm-hmm. So in return for his governmental office, he laid the pavement at his own expense. What is what the inscription says. Erastus is mentioned in the book of Romans mm-hmm. as being a leader in the book in the city of Corinth. 
And it's widely believed in the scholarly world that this is the same Erastus. Mm-hmm. The Erastus who says hi in Corinth is a Christian yeah. who paid for the street and received the governmental office in, in his return. Mm-hmm. By the way, if anyone wants to, we'll move on here now ourselves, but if you want to read more about this or learn more about this, there's a lot of books out there, about six or seven books out there called uh, A Week in the Life of. Yeah. Uh, a week in the life of Corinth, I think, is one. A, a week in the life of Rome is another. Mm-hmm. I think a, there's one. On a slave. The, a slave. Uh, I actually have. I'm going to read one next week for a class I'm prepping on. A week in the life of the fall of Jerusalem is one of them. So okay. I'm, All right. Very yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know Gary Birch wrote one of them. Yeah. And I you did the slave one, one, I want to say. Okay. Very good. Yeah. And there's one on uh, a week in the life of a Greco-Roman woman or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And the whole book is an, it's just a, a fictitious story that gives you one week. Uh, Monday through Sunday or Sunday through Monday, Sunday through Saturday, whatever it might be. And you're seeing these people grapple with, okay, I'm a Christian and there's a festivity. And what do I do? Because if I don't go, mm-hmm. then this is what happens to me. And it really helps kind of give you that context there. Um, there's also another book, The Letters to Pergamum. Have you read that one, Vinny? No. So you have this amazingly huge chasm from a socioeconomic standpoint, which means like the basic necessity of society is eating, right? Yeah. Does this become one of the reasons why Jesus is always talking or having you know meals in the gospel of Luke? Yeah. So he's always having, he's always at a meal in the gospel of Luke because it sets the context of patron, benefactor, client relationships. The mm. people who are hosting meals are the wealthy and the elite because the mm-hmm. poor can't have a meal for a whole lot of, a lot of people. They're trying to have enough meal for their own family. Mm. And you wouldn't invite anybody over for that meal because it's like barley loaves and who knows what else it might be. So the wealthy are having the meals. When a wealthy person has a meal, they invite other wealthy people. And depending on where you are in the pecking order is who you invite. If you invite somebody above you on the pecking order, it's because you want that person to come to your meal and give you even more honor. So they're going to invite Jesus to these meals because he's this noteworthy rabbi that the people love. And he's got thousands of followers. So Jesus is invited to these meals. And the way the meal works was you all sit in order of your status of honor within the okay. culture. Now, and Jesus tells a parable about our story about that. I think it's in Luke 19, right? Uh, and we'll get to that later. So the meals reflects this cultural context that's happening there. So the system was set up, however, so that you do something for them. And now I invited you, Vinny, to my meal. So guess what that means? You're in my debt until mm-hmm. you pay me back. Mm-hmm. You simply did not give a gift without expecting something in return. Mm-hmm. It's simply just the way it works. There's no altruism in the no, society. Yeah, not at mm-hmm. all. It's stupidity because why would you waste it on something that on giving it to somebody who's not going to give it back? Yeah. The whole goal is to get higher and higher and higher and higher and higher within this. If you can now, by the way, the 90% of the people can't get higher. They just can't, they have no hope of ever getting out of where they're at. It's almost like mm-hmm. a caste system. They're stuck where they are. You might get higher and higher. Maybe uh, do an anecdote for our study of the book of Acts and Paul. Paul says that he's a Roman citizen, but he's Jewish. So no one expects him to be a Roman citizen. So Mm -hmm. just remember that when we do the book of Acts. Later on, Paul is confronted by a soldier who's like, what do you mean you're a Roman citizen? And the soldier says, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. He eventually found a way to financially afford this. And Paul says, I was born a citizen. Mm -hmm. Now, Roman citizenship works where if your parents are citizens, you, the child, are a citizen. So Paul's like, my parents were citizens. Mm -hmm. I was born this way. 
And being born a citizen is better than having paid my way to mm -hmm. get citizenship. So I'm a little higher in the totem pole than you are. It's this system that Paul's like, you know, I'm defending who I am because I, I don't want you to beat me right now. And you're looking down on me. But the reality is you actually should be looking up to me. Mm -hmm. And Paul's not bragging at all. The word bragging and boasting kind of misunderstood there. We suspect that Paul's father or grandfather did something for the emperor who then granted his family citizenship. Okay. That, that's how he's going to get. So you can get citizenship a number of ways. You can pay for it. You can be born a citizen. You could be a, a, a citizen of a colony. So Philippi was a colony that Rome said, hey, because you helped us out in that war and we won the war, we're going to make that whole city of yours a colony. And every member of, the, of that colony is a citizen of Rome now. Mm -hmm. Or you can do something for the emperor. Maybe you're like a phenomenal at making statues and things like that. And you make this great statue for the emperor and you dedicate it to him. And he says, hey, you know what? Because of that, I'm going to grant you citizenship. That's just simply <laughs> the way it works. You do these things for these advantages that you might get. And that's probably how, how Paul got it. So the problem, of course, for that, as we're going to get into as we proceed through the gospel of Luke is no one is ever going to look out for the poor. You're simply mm -hmm. not going to do it because it doesn't gain you anything. And you probably can't afford to do it. So if you could afford to do it, you're not going to do it because they ain't going to gain you anything. Mm -hmm. And those who can't afford to do it aren't going to do it because they can't afford to do it. <sighs> wow. <laughs> That's yeah. just so like, <laughs> I, don't, it, I don't know. It just got to seem impossible to be. This is where I'm struggling for words because in our concept of America, there's this idea of the American dream. So like I, I think of my in-laws who moved to America they were in their Portuguese growing up in Angola. There's a civil war in the seventies. My, you know, they live here. My father lost 21. They have this young family. Mm. He works on the dairy, makes like $5,000 his first year. Next year, he doubles it. He sends himself to school, becomes an electrician. A couple of years ago, retires as an electrician at a, a factory in the union. Like this brilliant guy, like put his two daughters through college, owns a house, has a great retirement. He's, he is a picture of the American dream. This is a society where that concept does not exist at all. I, I Can I push back on that? Okay. I, I, that's what because I'm wondering. I, I I'm, I'm not it, saying as a fact, I'm saying yeah. like, this is what I'm getting from it. Yeah, no. Cause I think if you are a person of color, it definitely exists. You okay. simply were not allowed to get ahead. It was, it was simply against the law for you to get ahead, whether uh, you couldn't marry certain people. What do you mean a per person of color? Go uh, that. Uh, uh, African-Americans, especially, uh, and especially in the, in the South, uh, they were oh, oh, Okay. Okay. So you're talking about an American context. Yeah, okay. Yeah, got yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. I'm saying. So it does exist in our culture. Yes. Uh, it's still there. There are certain people that if, if you, if they walked into the room and you're in the medical office, you're like, I wouldn't expect a person like you to be a doctor. Sure. It, yeah. It still happens. Yep. It's yeah, still yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We have stereotypes and what, or a woman walks into a boardroom. And it's a major issue. They're, they're just looked down upon. They don't get yes. the same respect. People don't listen to them. They talk over them. You know, mansplaining is one of those mm -hmm, words mm -hmm. out there today because, you know, she, she speaks and somebody else has to tell everybody what she meant. It's like, I think I can tell you for myself what I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, Carly Fiorina, I don't, I know if she's a political mm -hmm. figure or whatever, but she speaks a lot about this, about what yeah. she faced as the uh, Hewlett Packard. Is that where she was at? Or was one it of those that companies? or eBay or what? I forget which company. Yeah, was she, she was yeah. the CEO yeah. of one of those companies and then ran for presidency for, yeah. for a while. But she does speak a lot about this and says, yeah, she was running the strip clubs. And, and they're like, if you want to meet with this client and you want to get this contract, this is where we're meeting. Hmm. So just this whole 
I think there are a lot of cultural things like that. Also. And I, I would disagree with that. And actually yeah. a, a great work on that that's came out a few years ago, the, the color of law. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It so just shows like it, it, where it's literally the government systemically determining how groups of people, specifically black Americans are just, you know, you're, you're stuck. <laughs> There's yeah, no American yeah. dream for you. Yeah. So that, that's right. Uh, yeah. So I was speaking about that in the generality of the concept yeah, yeah. of the American dream. So with that, though, that actually becomes a good talking point. If I am living in Rome and I'm in that 90 percentile category, wherever I'm at on that totem pole, because there's you know a bit of a levels there, like I, I'm not thinking that there's this dream where I could right. kind of dig this, you know, pull myself out by my bootstraps. That that just really does not exist for the most part, right? Right. Yes, but you can see why the gospel might flourish amongst that community, mm -hmm. and why it wouldn't flourish, especially when we're done with Luke, amongst the wealthy. Mm -hmm. Because the hope and the life. Now, at the same time, the poor are told, yeah, you need to give to that other guy who's even poorer than you, mm -hmm, even though he can't mm -hmm. give back. And then Jesus comes along and says, why do you worry about food? Why do you worry about clothing? Like mm -hmm. my whole life is yeah. a worry about food. Every single day mm -hmm. I worry about food. What do you mean, Jesus? Why do I worry about food? And then you told me to take the little bit of food that I have and give it to that guy or that woman. She's like, look, if God so raised the grass of the field and cares for the birds of the air, will he not care for you, O men of little faith? Okay. But now Luke is writing to Theophilus, this guy up in Rome. And he's like, give without expecting anything in return. You're like, okay, I'm going to lose all that I have. The money, the status, the power, the wealth. I'm going to lose it all or a lot of it if I do what you're telling me to do, Jesus. And not necessarily all of it. He's certainly going to come down in the totem pole in terms of status. And he's certainly going to have some economic impact. He probably is so wealthy that he's going to be okay. But this is going to be very impactful, mm. uh, significantly impactful. Uh, and Jesus is fundamentally speaking against this whole concept of uh, superiority and status. Yeah. Okay. So... When we look at the theme and the, or the purpose of Luke, that's one of the emphasis that we've had in both Matthew and Mark. We're looking at big picture. You know, we probably wouldn't say that the purpose of Luke is to learn how to take care of poor people. It's like, that's a part of right, it, but it's, right. it's bigger than that. That's, that's yeah. but, you know, one of the, the symptoms of the bigger problem here. What's the purpose of Luke? Okay. So Luke's purpose is to show that the God of Israel has visited his people and fulfill what the prophets had hoped for. So very much fulfillment is the major theme. Mm -hmm. The gospel of Luke begins with fulfillment and it ends with fulfillment in chapter one and chapter 28, uh, chapter 24. And what he's done is he's provided them a savior who was also going to be the savior for the nations. So in the gospel of Luke, what's interesting is, you know, when we go to Christmas every year, we have the four weeks of Advent and we tell mm -hmm. the biblical, the, the birth stories. We have a little bit of Matthew, but much, it's much of it is in Luke. Yeah. And so Luke is going to tell us the birth stories of John the Baptist and of Jesus and those, those stories there. But Luke is telling us those stories in the context of the, of the fulfillment that's happened. Mm -hmm. Remember, Matthew tells us fulfillment and like the story of Israel being fulfilled in Jesus. But Luke tells us the story of Israel in terms of the first Samuel. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises in Samuel. And it's like, what? What do you mean Samuel? I wouldn't think of that as like messianic at all. What happens in Samuel is this. Samuel is the prophet who is born, who anoints David the king. Mm -hmm. And John the Baptist is the prophet who's born, like Samuel, 
who anoints Jesus the king. And mm -hmm. so if, when you read the first two chapters, it's actually the first Samuel chapter one and first Samuel chapter two are the background there. And the point then is Jesus is the king of Israel, mm -hmm. but he's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of Israel for the nations. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, one of the key themes there. Well, and even like if you do a comparison of first Samuel two yeah. against the Magnificat of Mary and uh, Luke chapter one, it's amazing the parallels yeah. on those, on those two hymns themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about ladies. I love mine. <laughs> I, me too I love, not, not yours i love my no, mine. I, yeah no, I, I, love, I love tony she's a great one she's awesome yeah. I, guess, well, I, did, I, did, I totally came out wrong if you're listening at home i love yes. my wife yes uh but let's talk about uh women uh specifically in the gospel because luke talks about women and emphasizes women more than any other gospel right this is yeah. just all over the place so why special role or prominent role do we see of women playing in the gospel of luke so women play a significant role in the gospel of Luke. And one of the reasons why Luke is so stressing of women in the gospel and in his gospel is because they represent the poor. They represent those who are dependent upon others for, for subsistence and for survival. And that's why that book, a day in the life of a Greco Roman woman, I think, I think it is a fantastic book. So What's interesting is, is that there's a number of stories and I won't go through the list now because I know we're running a little low on time. There's a number of stories. If you go to the gospel of Luke, where something happens to a man and then the next story is the same thing happening to a woman, hmm. or maybe the story right before is about a woman and then a man. So you can just run through the whole gospel of Luke and you can look at my notes here. And I have some, uh, some mm -hmm. examples on that, where this happens to a woman and this happens to a man, this happens to a man, this happens to a woman throughout the whole gospel. So Luke really stresses that one of the key passages in that is Luke eight verses one through three where Luke notes that a number of prominent women, including like women from Herod's household, were providing for Jesus's care and well-being. And they were actually funding, not just supporting him in certain ways, but funding Jesus's ministry. So they were the patrons mm -hmm. and Jesus was the client in that sense there, even though that system of patronage where he owes them at the end of the day wasn't being followed there. How you, you first let off with women off oftentimes represent the poor, but then in, in Luke eight, it's that they are the ones who are actually funding. So I don't know if this is something that we'll hit on later. What, how, how, and why would a woman be rich in that context? Uh, they could still be rich. For example, I mean, you got Cleopatra in the ancient Roman world who had significant authority there. So they do have certain roles for some of the privileged women. But even then, they're still under, it's a, it's a patriarchal culture, a patriarchal society. Mm -hmm. They're still under that. You have the Proverbs 31 woman who owned mm -hmm. a business and things of that nature there. So even within Israel, they, they have a means of doing things. But for the most part, they were dependent upon a male for their, their survival. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So women, focusing on them, that's going to be a theme. What do we see in terms of the role of the poor, which we've kind of alluded to a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, so this is going to be the big thing in the Gospel of Luke that we're going to really stress here in the upcoming weeks. The poor are not just economically poor, but it's the outcasts, the ones who are dependent upon others, uh, socially, economically. You know, Zacchaeus is the poor. Mm -hmm. He's a tax collector. He's really wit, really rich, but he's been ostracized by his culture and by his society. So Luke emphasizes the poor beyond anybody else. And we're going to look at Luke chapter six in a few weeks. The poor and the oppressed basically are the same thing in Luke's gospel. And most significantly, when Luke gives us the Beatitudes in Luke six, he says, mm -hmm. blessed are the poor. Mm -hmm. Whereas Matthew says, blessed are the poor spirit. in spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
But remember, the rich can be poor also. We're going to have a story of a rich young ruler who says, I, oh, I, you know, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you know, keep these commandments. Oh, I, I did all those. Okay, great. Go sell your possessions and give them to the poor and then come follow me. And it says he went away grieved because he owned much land. He, he didn't mm -hmm. want to give away his possessions, which he only got at the expense of somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. At the expense of the poor. He took somebody else's land to get it. So that's going to be the, the significance of this. And maybe let me summarize this now, and I'll, I'll certainly hit upon this later. In Luke 6, Jesus says, love is the essence of what God's people are like. And love, not only those who love you, but love those who don't love you back. And what do you do more than others and all that good stuff. And then he goes on to say, if you love this way, you'll be children of the most high. And if you think about this, in this culture of patronage and benefactors, you love those above you so they can do something for you and they give you something a benefit in return. And you don't mm -hmm. love those below you because that doesn't help you out in any sense of the, of the imagination. But God loves everyone, right? For God to love the world in the gospel of John. And by nature and by definition, everyone is below God. Mm -hmm. So Jesus says, when you love the one below you, you're acting like God does because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. God loves you and you're below him. Mm -hmm. Therefore, now you go love those below you. And this is this theme that Theophilus is going to go, I don't know how I can make this work and retain who I am. What do I do with this? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's really significant when you, when you put those things together. Okay. So then poor for Luke does not merely mean that people who are just struggling economically, poor is a, is a much larger category. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's the dispossessed. It's the outcast. It's the women. It's the sinners. It's the tax collectors. It's the prostitutes. It's uh, Samaritans. It's, it's all these different peoples that are, that are outcast or out to the sideline and within our culture. So we talked about the themes of discipleship in both Mark and Matthew, you know, Mark will say, take up your cross and follow me. Do, do we see any themes like that popping up? Yeah, again, in Luke's gospel, it's going to be this ultimate distinction of what a disciple looks like. So Matthew's gospel might say, okay, the disciples are going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world and go out there and fulfill the mission of Israel. And as you said, Mark's gospel, like, well, we're going to follow Jesus by taking up our cross and following mm -hmm. him. In Luke's gospel, it's going to be, look, the community of God's people and disciples, they love, and that's what mm -hmm. they do. And there's a strong warning against materialism. And mm -hmm the corruption that comes that way. The rich are depicted as uh, those who think the goods of this world is all that there is. And there's even a parable about a rich man and Lazarus and the rich man has all this food and, and everything else. And this beggar Lazarus has no food. In fact, the dogs are licking his sores. And at the end, the rich man's in hell mm -hmm. and Lazarus is in paradise. Uh, so there's this ultimate reversal of the way the economic systems of the world work. And for a disciple of Jesus, they avoid attachment to wealth, they pray, they love, and they, Romans 12 says, you know, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. That's what Luke is saying. And Luke will tell us what that means and what that looks like. All right. Well, I'm excited. Have, have you left anything off <laughs> that you want to talk about here? Yeah, we've left one really significant thing off, probably perhaps in some ways, the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So remember that Luke is writing a second volume, the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the first volume, Luke 24, Jesus is, is resurrected. Jesus has appeared to his disciples. Hey, guys, this is what was supposed to happen. I was supposed to rise from the dead. And now you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. 
oh, but don't go anywhere yet. Stay here in Jerusalem. That's, that's the end of the gospel of Luke. The beginning of Acts, Jesus appears to them over, over 40 days. This is what was supposed to happen, fulfilling the prophecies. In Acts 1-7, you're going to be my witnesses from Jerusalem mm-hmm. to, to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But don't go anywhere yet. Stay in Jerusalem and wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is vital. In fact, a good assignment for, for anyone would be, if you're going to read the Gospel of Luke, just underline or highlight every time you see the reference to the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit's everywhere. One quick example of this. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us the story of, you guys are evil parents, but yet you still give good gifts to your children. Mm-hmm. Well, God is like this great parent. Will he not even do even more for you? If you ask him for bread, he's not going to give you a stone, will he? No. Well, in Luke's gospel, it says, will not God even give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Mm. So Luke is just inserting the spirit everywhere he can. You have the spirit even falling upon Elizabeth and Zacharias, John the Baptist's parents. So the Holy Spirit is essential there throughout the gospel, throughout the story of Jesus. He's empowered by the spirit. He's entrusted by the spirit. And then certainly that's because Luke is writing the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit now is the person who of the Trinity who empowers the people of God to, to fulfill their mission, to fulfill mm-hmm. their ministry. So the Holy Spirit is essential to understand the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Wow. Well, I'm excited. This, this has actually been, it seems like every episode we do, I'm like, wow, this has been my favorite episode and I've learned so much, but tonight is definitely one of those nights yeah. for me. So hopefully everyone is excited as they're going through this. And uh, how, how many weeks are we going to take on this week? We extended Matthew a little bit. We're going to, so Luke is the longest gospel, just uh-huh. so you know. And by the way, here's a little trivia for you. The most prolific writer of the New Testament is Luke. Mm-hmm. Prolific in terms of a number of words. Number of words. Yeah. Because Luke and Acts combined are longer than all 13 of Paul's letters combined. Mm-hmm. Even if we attribute all 13 letters to Paul, and I typically do, mm-hmm. uh, not including Hebrews. Yeah. So uh, Luke is the longest of the gospel. So we're actually, for those of you who are doing the study guide and the devotional guide, we're going to give you seven weeks for that. So we're going to do five weeks. We're going to do a sixth week where we're going to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, what we call the synoptics, and go, look, Matthew tells the story this way, Mark says this way, and Luke says this way. Why would, why would Matthew or Mark change it? What, what was their objectives based on what we know about Luke, what we know about Matthew, as to why they might tell the story this way? Have a lot of fun with that, and mm-hmm. I think opening our eyes to understand those Gospels better. And then we're going to have a week where we'll have a, a biblical scholar or a theologian or a practitioner and we've got a, a phenomenal speaker coming in. Actually, uh, Lisa Sharon Harper is going to come in and talk to us about Luke uh, and her story of being what we might call the poor, a black woman who's uh, had to make it in this world. And how, how does she get by? And, and what does that mean? And, and things like that. So we're looking forward to that. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited. Hopefully everyone is still continuing to do those devotionals. If you want to get a hold of those, contact Rob and he'll get you on the list. They're on the determinedtruth.com uh, would also be another way of getting them also or, yeah. or contacting me and I'll email them to you every Friday, which is going to be updated soon, right? The, uh, the website. Yep. So by the time you get this podcast live, we will have the new website uh, live. So we're going to have two sites from now on. Those of you that have been following this ministry know that we're on Pathios, mm-hmm. Determined Truth under Pathios. But if you type in determinedtruth.com now, you're going to get to determinedtruth.com. It's going to be mm-hmm. our own webpage that we're, we're taking back over. And so it'll be, they'll be mirrored. There'll be the same information on both sites, but determinedtruth.com will be its own independent site also. Yeah, and it looks great. So hope everyone's enjoying that. Have a great week. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.